Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey folks, before we start really exciting news, we now have CME available from ACRAC. That's right. You can get AMA PRA Category 1 credit for listening to ACRAC and then filling out just a quick survey question that will take you not more than about 30 seconds to a minute. Those links are at the website, ACRAC.com, in each uh, show notes, you can see right under the description, there will be a bold CME with a link. You click on that link. It's a small cost for each credit, much less than you would pay to go to a conference or get the 20 or 30 or 40 credits that you need for the year. You can do them one at a time for each episode that you listen to and get a full credit for just listening to an ACRAC episode and then filling out this quick question. This is powered by CMEFI. It's using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. And it really is great. You can do this in just a minute or less and get credit. So if you are out there looking for a way to get PRA Category 1 credit for your CME requirements, or if you're already getting it somewhere but you're already listening to ACRAC anyway and you'd like to get it from this, now you can. Every episode can get you a credit, so you can get more than 200 credits from ACRAC episodes by listening and then clicking on that link on the website at ACRAC.com. All right, now on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a fantastic guest, Dr. Stephen Bradley. We're going to talk about medical ethics uh, in general and specific to anesthesiology. Stephen is an anesthesiologist. He is someone who has really developed an interest in this area. He speaks about this uh, quite prolifically. He is also someone who has a couple of podcasts, and I'm excited to have a fellow podcaster on the podcast. Um, He uh, is the host of both the Black Doctors podcast and Curbside Ethics, and uh, we'll put links to both of those in the show notes, something you can check out and that I'm sure he'll talk a little bit about. I'm very excited to have him on the show to talk about this really interesting and important area. Stephen, thanks for being here and welcome to the show. Jed, thank you so much for having me. I've listened for quite a while to ACRAC and was wondering what I could possibly contribute to your amazing body of work. And uh, and hopefully this is helpful to the listeners. 
Oh, I'm sure it will be. And thank you for saying those kind words. Well, let's start, Stephen, by tell us a little bit about you. Uh, what was your path to your career where you are now? What are you interested in? How do you spend your time? Yeah, so about me, um, I'm Stephen. I'm an anesthesiologist, with, like you mentioned, with a, a special passion for medical ethics. I am a Navy brat. So I grew up up and down the East Coast. My dad retired down in Jacksonville, Florida. And about that time, I went to undergrad at a small religious school. I was initially going to be to go into the ministry. And then um, plans changed. I completed medical school at Howard University, so just down the street from where you're at. Um, after Howard, I proceeded on to the University of Chicago Medical Center and completed a categorical residency in anesthesiology. It was there that my passion for medical ethics kind of evolved. I was very interested in critical care and, and actually uh, wanted to do a fellowship in critical care. It's been deferred um, due to a service commitment I have with the Navy. And I'm currently finishing up that four-year commitment in Norfolk, Virginia at Naval Medical Center, Portsmouth. Well, great. Thank you for your service, Stephen. And um, certainly sounds like a, a wide-ranging interest, and you've been at some really great places. Um, we've got, uh, uh, I'm sure, some some common uh, friends at University of Chicago, which we'll have to talk <laughs> about offline. Um, well, again, really interesting stuff. So um, how did you develop this interest in uh, bioethics, and, and how did it develop kind of over time? Yeah, so it started to develop early on in residency as I was faced with different dilemmas, different situations where I felt like I was in over my head. I had the moral leaning or I felt like certain things should happen a different way than they ended up happening. I didn't know the term at that time, but what I was experiencing was moral distress, which is knowing the right thing to do, but being limited by systemic constraints. It's, uh, you know, we started fixing words to all these different um, emotions that we have, whether it's imposter syndrome or moral distress. And and it's very important to be able to describe these because other people have these similar shared experiences. Um, briefly, you know, early on in the ICU, I had a patient who um, had a lung transplant and the pulmonologist came in and said, we're, you know, terminating care. This, this is it. We, this is all we can do. And I thought to myself, you know, you, you don't just unilaterally make that decision. But I was left to talk with that patient and, you know, I'd had developed a relationship with the, the, the family and was able to navigate that situation. But I thought in the future, I don't want to leave other trainees or other coworkers in a similar situation. I want to be able to empower them and, and help them navigate these very difficult, challenging situations. Yeah. I, and that's so key. I think we come across in medicine in general, certainly in critical care, we come across this uh, all the time. And it's incredibly difficult, as you say, to feel like you're not morally comfortable with or ethically comfortable with the things that are happening. And then to not know whether you can talk about that or who to talk about it with, it can be very challenging. Even the ethics of, of for example, you know, feeling like you may have made an error and, and what do you do and should you talk about that? And, and like you said, that contributes incredibly to imposter syndrome. And yet we've all, we've all made errors. It's just that yeah. nobody talks about it. Um, and so it's super important to think and talk about this stuff. And I'm really glad you're doing it. What um, say, talk briefly before we jump into to actually talking about um, the specifics of medical ethics that we're going to cover today. Talk about your podcast. How did those develop, and, and what are they? <laughs> yeah, so the podcast kind of developed um, during 2020. I actually had some downtime. A lot of places were very busy working in the military. Our patient population wasn't super sick, and I actually had a little bit of extra time. 
and I wanted to try something new that I hadn't done before. And I really wanted to work towards my passion of increasing diversity in healthcare and just increasing representation. Um, so many um, underrepresented minorities don't have that exposure to physicians or pharmacists or podiatrists. So I looked up uh, different YouTube videos and, and Googled some blogs, listened to your podcast, figured out how I could build a podcast of my own and just bring different visitors and guests on to, to share their experiences in the hopes of um, providing that representation for the next generation of minority uh, healthcare workers. Um, after uh, six or eight months of that, I also wanted to combine my interest in medical ethics. And I had another podcast spinoff, Curbside Ethics, which I, I produce an episode every month or so of that. Well, that's fantastic. And I assume Curbside Ethics is talking about the topic that we're talking about. Is it, do you take kind of common scenarios? Do you take listener kind of requests or scenarios they send in? How do you decide what to talk about on there? A little bit of both. Um, I'm suffering from a, a lack of listeners. But uh, when I do have feedback, I incorporate that into an episode. But obviously, with the pandemic, with the vaccine mandates, with all these different scenarios going on, vaccine equity, that was you know, very good material to kind of break down and explain further in individual podcast episodes. Well, I think it sounds fascinating. I will definitely be checking it out, and I would encourage our listeners to as well. Um, it sounds like a topic that everyone could benefit from. So glad you are doing it. Let's jump in and talk about approaching ethical dilemmas. Uh, what recommendation do you have kind of in general and then specifically for trainees? If, if, it's, if there's in any way, you know, a difference you think that trainees face as opposed to any practicing anesthesiologist or, or doctor, what, what do you recommend people do when they are approaching these dilemmas? I recommend first and foremost, just a very open dialogue and communication. Communication is a word that, that means so much in healthcare. And realize that as a physician or a clinician, when you're confronted with a patient and you're confronted with different uh, scenarios, there is several different approaches. The patient's perspective on what's going on, your perspective based upon your years of training and education, the other support staff, whether it's nursing, uh, whether it's the attending and you're a resident, there's so many different perspectives. And you really have to sit down and have an open, candid conversation to understand where is this patient coming from? Where are they trying to get to? What are their goals of care in this scenario? What are the systemic constraints of, of the facility at which you work? What, um, you know, what uh, priorities do do they have and, and what, uh, what's the word, um, kind of structure is set up to, to make these decisions. So when you're breaking it down for everybody, you can look at, you know, what are the medical indications for this procedure or for this therapy? What are the preferences of the patient? You know, how will this affect their quality of life? And what are some of the contextual features of this uh, situation? And that construct kind of comes from a book, Clinical Ethics, A Practical Approach to Ethical Decisions in Clinical Medicine. Um, because obviously, when it comes to these decisions, you, you usually aren't ready to just spout off a quick response. A lot of times you have to wait, look this up, confer with colleagues, um, read an article, and then you can have a better way to go back to the patient and the care team and address these situations. Now, as a resident or a trainee, 
you don't likely have the final say in how everything's going to go down. So you have to kind of couch your response. You have to navigate this added layer and communicate as best you can, realizing, though, that your attending physician or other consultants, one, they probably have a different perspective. Two, they probably have a little more visibility on the overlying system in which you're operating. So there has to be that level of trust, Um, almost like in the military. You know, sometimes you follow orders. You don't always know or see the big picture. I will say there's a caveat there that obviously when something seems egregiously wrong, it is your duty to speak up. That may not always feel good. Um, You may or may not be supported and protected. Unfortunately, I wish I could say differently, but if you can um, take your course of action, speak on what's needs to be spoken on and sleep at night, you know, that's something to be said for your moral standing. Yeah. I think that's such a, it strikes me as an incredibly difficult position for trainees facing not all more, because uh, often, in fact, I would say, and tell me if you disagree, but I would say probably most of the time, it's going to be something that everybody on the team is struggling with. Like the one you laid out at the beginning, deciding whether or not to withdraw support from a patient uh, is something probably that everyone is going to think hard about, hopefully, and, and feel is, you know, at least a, a ethically fraught situation. But there are going to be times where you know, not hopefully that often, but like you said, where a trainee may feel one way and their attending may feel another. And ultimately it's going to be up to the attending. And so figuring out when to just step back and say, okay, I disagree, but I'm going to trust that this attending has more years of experience than I do. And so maybe has a perspective that, that, you know, I should trust versus saying maybe this attending is, you know, not actually doing the right thing here. And it is fitting into that egregious, really wrong category. And hopefully that's super, super rare. I think it is, but really tricky to try to find that balance of when to speak up and say, I I can't go along with this versus whether to say, I disagree, but I'm going to go along, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this really takes effect when, you know, the, the recommendations I have for training you know, talk to your senior resident. It's a good place to start. Hey, have you seen this before? What's the situation? They may be able to provide that guidance. If that doesn't resolve it, then in a non-confrontational way, maybe ask your attending, oh, why do we, why are we doing this modality or why are we withdrawing care? I don't quite feel comfortable with this. Can you explain it to me? Um, a step further is perhaps as sometimes happens, I, I, I'm sure it's extremely rare in the ICU where the intensivist and the surgical team disagree um, but be cognizant of those professional relationships that as maybe an anesthesia resident, you're not quite supposed to go toe-to-toe with the surgical attending, right? And realize that you need to use your chain of command, and it probably stops with your attending, having that open, frank discussion, and know that your attending has that visibility and that rapport with the surgical team to be able to kind of round out your concerns and, and make sure that we're all on the same team for the patient. Yeah, that's really important. I would agree with you. I think being able to have those conversations is so key. And one of the themes I hear you saying over and over, and I totally agree with, is the importance of communication. Because you can't just come in and and unilaterally make these decisions. You can't assume that you know everything going into them. You really need to assume that you are one piece of the puzzle and your import, your opinion is important, but you use lots you can learn to, and you never know what perspective someone else is coming from. The surgical team may have a stance that on, on the face of it seems outrageous, but when you talk to them, you realize there was information they had you didn't have. So 
I think having those conversations is really key and trying to go into those conversations with an open mind, which is the more ethically fraud something is, the harder <laughs> that is to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. If I, if I can digress, um, so one of the things that I did to further my training in ethics is a fellowship. I, I say I'm a medical ethicist. I don't know quite what goes into being a medical ethicist because there's a, a spectrum of levels of education, whether master's programs, PhDs. And for me specifically, my last year of residency, going to my CA3 year, I was able to participate in the McLean Center for Clinical Medical Ethics. It's a one-year fellowship. It's uh, offered at the University of Chicago, the McLean Center for Ethics. And the beauty of that one year, we started with a, a full month of daily didactics where we heard from lawyers and philosophers and parishioners. The beauty of it was the cohort we were with. It was myself, uh, surgical residents, pediatric residents, pediatric attendings, uh, social workers, nursing staff. And over the year, we were able to kind of mesh together and we would have weekly grand rounds where the pediatric department would present an ethical dilemma. And you would hear the adult doctors and the surgeons, oh, this is ridiculous. What, what is, what's going on? And then the surgeons would present and the medicine doctors like, well, we actually do this differently. And that blend of perspectives really helped everybody to understand better where each specialty was coming from, as well as each personality trait to some extent. Yeah, I think of it, that that sounds like a great uh, opportunity, by the way. And uh, I, I assume folks can check out the um, center if they are interested in doing a similar fellowship as the one you did. I, I think of this a lot as, you know, you sometimes you're going to have to say, I disagree. And this is not just for trainees. I think anyone, I, as the ICU attending, at times I have to say, okay, you know, the surgical attending and I disagree. And we're going to have to come to a compromise that may or may not be what either of us 100% wants. And it's much like, I think, a marriage where you can't always get your way. You know, you have to say, <laughs> I, this is what I would like. I'm frustrated that I can't have it, but, you know, I'm going to be willing to compromise because you there, when there are when there's more than one person involved in a decision, it can't always be what everybody wants all the time, and that's even more true, I think, in these situations where you've got the certainly the patient, the patient's family, probably multiple medical teams. In, in our case, in the surgical ICU, certainly a surgical team and, a, and an ICU team, maybe some consulting teams, maybe you've involved palliative care, maybe you've involved the ethics committee. You've got all these different groups, and when all those people are involved, it's very unlikely that everyone is going to get exactly what they want. And I think you have to be okay with that. I try to tell our, you know, uh, our students and our residents stand up for your, what you believe in, make your point and, and, and respectfully, you know, feel free to be heard. But in the end, you also have to be okay, unless it's something just outrageous that you can't possibly go along with, but you have to be okay knowing, you know, okay, what we decided to go forward with, isn't what I would have done, but that's okay because it isn't just me and we have to be willing to compromise. And that's hard for some people. Absolutely. Yeah. What you said, compromise, compromise is key when, you know, you, you need to, and, and I'd like to believe in most facilities, you know, we're not committing egregious uh, medical errors and, and treating patients poorly. We all are centered. The reason we came into this profession is to do what's best for the patient. 
and none of us has the absolute right to know what's best for the patient, right? Uh, theoretically, the patient should, but you know, I think a lot of times patients need help or ask for help. They want to know, right? They need our help to figure out what the right choice is because they don't necessarily know all the different pieces of the puzzle. And then other times patients may uh, not have all the options. I mean, there are, you know, maybe a patient, for example, who what they think is best for them would be to get that lung transplant, but yeah. we can't offer it because they're no longer eligible, right? And that that is tricky. And so those are things we have to be willing to to compromise on. And so it's not quite as simple as saying the patient is always right, the patient knows what's best for them, because the patient may not be able to understand all the medical issues, and they may not be able to have the thing that they think would be best for them, even if we want to give it to them, even if they want it. So there, it's a little more, or perhaps a lot more complicated than that. Would you agree? Absolutely. And that last piece comes into the communication of how do you communicate that to a patient that you are not a candidate for this transplant? And you could, can you communicate that in a way that you maintain that trusting relationship uh, in the setting of health equity and different, you know, members and, and distribution and breakdown of the healthcare team? Do you look like the patient that you're, just, you're uh, having this conversation with? How do you communicate in a way that maintains that healthy, trusting relationship? Yeah. And that's really interesting that you bring that up in terms of, you know, the trust, right, that may or may not exist between patients and their healthcare providers. Uh, and there's obviously a lot of history involved in why populations may or may not trust a, a certain doctor that they may be working with. And and the importance of, as, as in your words that you just said, you know, having a doctor who you can trust and who may look like you and who can share a lot of your, uh, you know, understanding of where you're coming from, that can make a huge difference for patients in the trust in their trust in the system and the decision that's being made. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk. Uh, actually, let me ask you one thing. Uh, I want to talk about some specific issues that come up in anesthesiology. But let me. I mentioned before ethics committees. What? Talk a little bit about that. What role do ethics committees play? I mean, not it may well be that not every person out there listening has an ethics committee at their practice or their hospital, but I think a lot of big academic centers do. We certainly do. Talk about that. What what um, role do ethics committees play in all of this? Yeah, ethics committees have the potential to play a, a huge role in mitigating these difficult ethical scenarios when encountered with patients. Um, definitely your larger medical centers, especially if you're dealing with transplants or high-risk obstetrics. And one of the best things that the ethics committee does is provide an impartial review of the data of the scenario that's going on. They're usually present to be able to facilitate family meetings, which can be quite large. I remember back during fellowship, we had a ethics meeting that had an endocrinologist, um, maternal fetal medicine, OB anesthesia, ICU, um, ear, nose, and throat surgeons, um, to name a few of the parties involved. And the ethics committee is usually made up of people that are passionate about medical ethics that have done some additional um, studying, whether it's just, um, you know, reading articles on their own or further formal education. The one thing that I, I the one caveat about ethics committees is they're not a substitute for your clinical judgment as a physician, right? We went to medical school, we passed our board exams. There is some level of altruism for why we went into this field. In a lot of these scenarios, we should be able to manage based upon the things that we've learned along the way because of or along established practice guidelines at our facility. So it's the the caveat to I think I'm in over my head and I want to curbside a colleague or the ethics committee 
to make sure that I'm I'm hitting all the bases. Yeah, I, I have found the ethics committee here to be incredibly helpful um, in thinking through things and addressing particularly difficult situations. So I think if you have one, you find that out and uh, and you know consult them when needed. But but I will say the ethics committee is not a scapegoat to deliver bad news or difficult news to your patient. Oh, I totally agree. And in fact, I would never want, and I hope others would agree, if, if it's my patient, I would never want to put that conversation off. It's a hard conversation if you're giving news of, you know, we can't go forward with this care or this transplant yeah. or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, certainly if I've developed a, a relationship with the patient uh, and their family, putting that, giving that, handing that off to someone else who just because they happen to say this, I think would be a really bad idea. But I think helping to have, uh, you know, for me and for other practitioners to be able to have that conversation to make sure, for example, is there anything I didn't think about? Is there anyone I didn't talk to who I should have talked to? Much like the things you're saying, you've learned, you know, the importance of that communication and you, given the perspective you have and your practice and the fact that you did this fellowship, you might be able to say to me, you know, Jed, you really should talk to this group. And I might say, oh yeah, that's great advice. I didn't do that. Or you really should bring this up with the patient and I haven't yet. So I think it's added expertise just as, you know, I would never turn over care of my ICU patient to the cardiology consult team. Uh, I would not turn over these decisions or this conversation to the medical ethics team, but it can still help me formulate my plan. Absolutely. So let's talk about issues that arise in, in anesthesiology. So one is informed consent. Talk a little bit about how that can be an ethically fraught area and how you recommend people approach it. Yeah. Informed consent is something that we do every day as part of, who we are, what we do as anesthesiologists. And having those conversations is critical to doing what's best for the patient. Oftentimes, people are coming in for an elective uh, knee scope, and, and it's a pretty straightforward conversation. But as patients get sicker, um, procedures get more invasive, sometimes those conversations do tend to change. And are you correctly uh, describing the risk that this patient is, is subjecting themselves to? The question of, do patients understand numbers? If I'm saying it's a one in a 10,000 chance of this happening, is that something that the patient is really able to understand and grasp the, the gravity of? Oftentimes with informed consent comes uh, conversations about capacity and competence. And as I was reading probably last month or two, I was struck with the notion of where what I was reading was describing how capacity is different for every patient. And the concept that the capacity of a third-year surgical resident presenting to have their appendix taken out, their capacity is different from a you know twenty-five-year-old school teacher that comes to have their appendix taken out because they they know more. And that was really something that that struck me that capacity is not different for is capacity is not the same for every patient that we see. But are you able to explain and communicate? the risks that are significant to that patient for that procedure. Um, and in the literature, there is the different standards of informed consent, whether it's the reasonable clinician, whereas what are your partners telling patients, uh, whether it's the reasonable patient uh, standard, where what does a normal patient want to know, or the hybrid, which I think everything's moving towards, which is a shared decision-making. Take a little bit extra time, understand what is a high priority for your patient, and be able to kind of tailor that conversation around the patient and what they need, what they want, 
and, and their comorbidities. Yeah, and this is such an interesting area. So what do you say, Stephen, to the patient who says, Doc, you know, you start telling them the risks of anesthesia. They say, I don't want to know. I, I want to have this surgery. I don't want to hear that. It's just going to stress me out. Is, that, is it ethical to say, okay? Do you, do you have to? I think a lot of our, uh, us in general, certainly our residents feel like they have to lay out every possible risk. And, you know, they'll even, uh, people will say to, to patients, I, you know, it's really unlikely that you're going to die from this, but you might. So I have to, there is a, it's not zero. So I have to tell you, is that true? Do we ethically have to tell people that they could die from anesthesia? Stay with us. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, we're back with Dr. Stephen Bradley and his answer to whether we have to tell patients that they might die from anesthesia. Well, let me uh, let me uh, consult the Clinical Ethics and Anesthesiology, a case-based textbook real quick. Awesome. Um, fantastic resource. I think you're going to add the links to the show notes, but no, um, you know, patients are able to refuse these conversations. One of the things I would say is, you know, discuss with that patient, well, well why don't you want to know and further that conversation? But if the patient, you know, is adamantly refused to, to hear any risk, as long as you're comfortable proceeding, um, you know, other members of the team are aware of this kind of situation, tagging the surgical team. Did they have that discussion with their surgeon and, and make sure everybody's in, involved on the same page and okay to, to proceed? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And it's unclear that, uh, you know, the idea that we have some legal duty to name every possible risk, even in the face of the patient saying they don't want to hear it. You know, I'm not sure where that comes from, but I'm glad the textbook agrees that that may not be the case. (laughs) What about, uh, you know, the patients who are quite frail, lots of comorbidities, very high risk coming in for for a a non-emergent surgery, whether it's purely elective or or semi-elective, um, what about those patients who, you know, the temptation, especially if we're just meeting them in the preoperative area, maybe, all right, they're here, they've had these discussions, we're in a hurry, you know, the, the hospital's measuring turnover time, we got to go, we got to go. Whereas I think, and, and tell me if you agree, that we may have more of a duty there to revisit these conversations and say, do you really understand that you may never get extubated, you may never leave the ICU after this surgery? Is that a, you know, do we, how do we balance the time factor, the, the fact that in theory, maybe these conversations have happened with our duty to make sure they understand before they actually go back? Absolutely. It's a really good question. And one, take it a step, step further, 
these patients may come with a DNR or DNI order as well. And just like when you're meeting patients that are more complex than others, you have to pause, you have to take the appropriate amount of time to prepare that patient, you know, from a chart dissection, from an evaluation, a perioperative evaluation. And I, I don't consider this any different. I adjusted the way that I consent patients back when I was studying for my oral boards. And I would say, you know, there's a, there's um, minor complications that can occur. And then there's major complications that are, you know, occur much less frequently, very rare. And in your situation, since you're an ASA one, very low risk of any of those things happening. For the ASA four um, cardiac cripple, I'd say, you know, you're at an increased risk for your heart stopping during surgery um, for test compressions. In, and I have a pretty frank conversation about what are your, your goals of care? You know, as you're having a surgery, where do you want to be after the recovery period? Um, is this patient's goal to get back to the couch watching Golden Girls? Or do they want to be back out cutting the yard? What is that patient's functional status currently? Because getting to know that patient will shed a fair amount of light on um, the risk-benefit ratio and, able, and enable you to better communicate that in your discussion. So I, I do slow down and make sure that I'm having that discussion. Think about if this was my grandparent um, having this, you know, whether the, the children are at bedside or whoever their, um, their support person is, making sure everybody's on the same page because it's better to have those conversations before surgery and, you know, everything goes as planned rather than, you know, being stuck uh, after surgery with a, a less than ideal outcome. Yeah, I totally agree. And I find you have to be careful. You have to be careful to, let's say it says in the chart, you know, uh, code status discussed patient and or family, you know, want the patient to be full code. I think a lot of times we say, okay, you know, the, the conversation's been had, but it's not clear to me that that's a good approach. I think that often if you are taking over care of that patient or, and or dealing with that family uh, for the first time, it's probably worth revisiting that conversation because it's not the fact that it happened once doesn't mean it's never going to change. And different providers may do this in different ways. I, I give this example a lot to our learners. I'll say, if you say to a family, if your loved one's heart stops, do you want us to restart it? Who's going to say no to that? Right. I mean, that's an incredibly I mean, that may sound like a neutral question. It is not. Right. That is a very loaded in one direction way to ask that question. If, on the other hand, you say, you know, I know on TV when someone's heart stops, all they do is put these paddles on and they wake right back up and start eating their dinner. Right. But that is not actually how this goes. And if you, you know, if, if your loved one heart stops, it probably means they've gotten so sick that the chances that we'd be able to start it are very low and the chances that we'd be able to, even if we did start it, that they'd get back to where they are now or even lower. And to try to start it would involve a lot of really invasive things that would potentially be quite painful. Um, we're happy to try that if you think that's what they would want us to do. That's a very different way of framing that. And yet I think a more accurate one. So just because someone had the conversation doesn't mean they that they framed it in a way. And and I've certainly taken over care of patients who have, in theory, been full code until we have the conversation and they change their mind. Uh, and I think that's significant. You can't assume that because someone wrote in the chart that they had the conversation or someone wrote in the chart that they discussed the preoperative risks already, that that means they covered everything you think should be covered. Absolutely. And, and for me, you know, I work at other hospitals in addition to the, my um, main hospital. So Moonlighting other facilities, 
some facilities actually have the anesthesia consent form signed, like the, the pre-op nurse will have the patient sign the consent form before I've even talked to them. I'm like, whoa, well, let's, is this your signature? You know, and I'll, I'll go through my own consent form. So it's important to notice, like we're here talking about this now um, and, and Hopkins and University of Chicago and all these other places that, um, you know, that practiced um, it is not distributed or representative of a lot of the hospitals across the country. So it speaks to the benefit of this, this podcast and hopefully folks can kind of rethink those practices. And it, and it may result in, as an anesthesiologist, you have to talk with your surgical colleague, your orthopedic surgeon, who's just plowing ahead. We've revoked the DNR, DNI, and you're going to have to have that awkward conversation. Hey, actually, well, let me just go talk to the patient. Um, and and it, it may or may not change what's going to happen in the OR that day, but there's a mindset that's going to have to change. Yeah, I agree. And this, again, as so much of this does, comes down to communication. I always recommend, I, I always personally, when I find out the cases I'll be doing the next day, I look them up and then I always communicate with the surgeon the night before. I send them an email and I say, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm thinking. And sometimes that involves saying, this patient seems very high risk. I will want to make sure when I speak with them in the preoperative area that they understand the substantial risks here and that they definitely want to proceed. So I'm letting the surgeon know that the night before. So it's not a surprise the next day when we're having this conversation or when maybe the patient says, you know, I, I'm not sure I do want to go forward. I find, and I think we're very lucky to have wonderful surgeons here, that, that the surgeons, you know, if a patient is high risk enough and doesn't want to go forward, you know, that's not something the surgeon wants to do because they're the ones then, you know, who are going to be very involved in having to explain to the family why this bad outcome happened, why they went forward with the surgery. And again, I'm not talking about emergent surgeries or, you know, surgeries that the patient's quality of life would be terrible without. I'm, I mean, surgeries that, you know, something like, you know, maybe a, a um, spinal fusion, which the patient's okay. Maybe they have some pain, but they're able to move around. And, you know, do they realize that by having the surgery, they may never get out of the ICU? Is that what they would prefer? If it is, that's okay. But yeah. they need to know that and make those decisions. So let's talk about um, moral distress. You brought this up earlier um, as, as a, uh, something that people face and don't necessarily always talk about. Talk a little more about how that comes up and how people should try to deal with it when they feel it. Absolutely. Yeah. Moral distress. Again, I, I didn't know that was what I was feeling when I was first feeling it, but being around other healthcare workers and being exposed to some of the um, more sad scenarios that we deal with uh, in our profession. Um, you know, as you look around, you'll notice other people and what they're going through. So the first couple of codes that I attended as a resident um, patient expired and, and that was that back to work. Um, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't want to be like the uh, the pictures you see in the news where you know you're kind of slumped in a corner and and looking sad and distraught. But um, after one horrible code, that was me and my co-resident sitting there. And so I know moving forward for the folks that I work with, I'm especially attentive to their needs immediately post you know these traumatic situations. Um, I'm not super skilled or trained in psychiatry or, or mental health, but I'm able to ask, hey, are you okay? Um, and at least start a dialogue to maybe assess, does this person need to get plugged in with other people? Um, sometimes the best thing we can do is just um, be there for somebody and, and 
be a shoulder to lean on, a shoulder to talk to. I think we can get wrapped up in our own day-to-day, whether sure you're, you're a resident and you disagree with the, the system or you're attending, and that's something you have to navigate. But remember that the rest of the team um, is at risk as well. So we just talked about DNR, DNI. What about the operating room nurse or the circulator? Did you tell them, hey, we had this conversation with the patient. We're good to go. So if their heart stops, we're not going to resuscitate them. Without that crucial bit of information, that nurse, that scrub tech, that circulator is at high risk for moral distress because they feel that the team is letting them down and they would react uh, differently. Um, so when it comes to that that moral distress, you know, open communication, I think that's the, the theme of the episode, and making a safe place for people to come with their concerns and to discuss a lot of the, the things that we see day to day on this job. Yeah, you bring up a couple of really important points, I think. One is that uh, you have to include the whole team, right? So we, I think, maybe too often fall down the, the make the mistake of thinking, oh, the surgeon and the anesthesia team, the surgical team, and the anesthesia team, we've talked. Therefore, everybody's talked, right? Well, we forget, right? Unfortunately, sometimes that we're not the only pieces of the team. There are nurses in the operating room, techs, et cetera, um, pre-op, post-op, where there's a lot of other people involved and, and it's important to make sure everyone understands the plan and feels comfortable with it. So that's one really important thing. Another, I think, is that, uh, you know, these are very challenging conversations and you want to make sure that you uh, recognize that people may not be comfortable speaking up. And so trying to, especially trainees. So I think for us who are in attending roles, trying to keep that, keep our eye on the trainees and, and just, you know, you might have someone who says they're fine, but they don't seem fine. So trying to check in. And then when these events happen, if you do have somebody die or, or get seriously injured in the operating room, you don't want to have a system that just says, okay, you know, let's go, let's go 30 minute turnover back to work. You need yeah. to have a way to reach out to these people, um, to the team, to debrief, to offer support. We're very lucky. We have a, a whole team here at the hospital called the resilience and stressful events team, rise resilience and stressful events who will respond and help either teams or individuals work through this stuff in a confidential way. Um, that can be really helpful. Sometimes you got to give people time off. They've got to go see a counselor. Uh, but what you don't want is for people to become second victims. And I think people know that term. Right. But the you know if, if a bad thing happens, the victim is the the patient who suffered. But the second victims can be the providers who may end up uh, having very extreme negative outcomes if they feel that they're blaming themselves. They're a bad provider. It's their fault. They don't get the support they need. So I think it's crucial, crucial, crucial for health systems, hospitals programs, departments to recognize this. And when there is a bad outcome to provide support to the people involved. Absolutely. Let's talk about what happens if you as a provider feel a lack of confidence in your colleagues. And this could really range, I would think, from anything from feeling like your a colleague is impaired on the job to just a colleague is not good at their job. Um, it could be a variety of other things. How do you navigate that ethical dilemma? Yeah, absolutely. Difficult, very difficult. Um, and based upon, you know, the, the podcast, Dr. Death, there's obviously some egregious cases. But if you think about how that was able to continue to occur in healthcare, we're very siloed. So we don't always know what's going on in the operating room next to us what's going on with our colleagues. We just see this at turnover, or maybe you hear rumors from the 
nursing staff or circulator staff. Um, so it's important to try to develop actionable items, um, whether that's, you know, I noticed that, you know, you uh, don't reverse your intermuscular blockade. Is there a reason why you do that? Um, you know, typically we, we kind of practice this way um, these days. And perhaps it's not the right uh, time or, or place for you to have a conversation with your colleague. That's why we work in departments and there is somebody that is in somewhat of a leadership role and you can address your concerns to that individual. And, you know, they should, if they're a good leader, be able to take care of those concerns. If, uh, you know, after several instances and, and you feel that your concerns aren't, are going unheeded, have that conversation with that leader. And if you're not, um, you know, getting the answers that you want, perhaps you need to look elsewhere. That's within the department. Now, when you're working with your surgical colleagues, I think there's a, a saying that a good surgeon deserves a good anesthesiologist and a bad surgeon requires one. Um, but again, realize that there is that limited information. I'm not a surgeon. I didn't go to surgical residency. So there is that benefit of the doubt. Um, over time, you know, we're developing relationships with other surgeons. You can say, hey, you know, I, I noticed your partner did this. What do you think about that? And if anything, you know, tune in those other partners to to that surgeon's uh, behaviors or complication rate. And the system should work to uh, to tighten up those discrepancies. We're still not off the hook because if the system does nothing, the system's broken. Um, you know, we we're still we still have a duty to go above and beyond for the health and safety of our patients. Yeah, really tricky. I think you know when we're talking about an imp- uh, concern about an impairment, someone being you know intoxicated on the job. In a way, that's easier because I think. There are, in many states, uh, reporting mechanisms that can help people without ruining their careers. And and so it's hopefully pretty straightforward that you should report that stuff because you want to get someone help before they end up dead in a call room somewhere. Yeah. But, you know, I think, let alone hurt a patient, obviously. But I think the trickier one is is what you were talking about, which is you think that someone is, you know, they're just maybe practicing in a way that may not be best practice or even might be a little dangerous. I think it's particularly tricky for trainees because, you know, you may think an attendee isn't doing something, but, are, you know, you don't have the expertise yet to necessarily evaluate that completely. Maybe they're just doing it differently than you've seen other attendings do. Um, but it's hard because, uh, you know, you have to think through that. I, I think you're right that going to someone, if you're a trainee, going to your program director and discussing it in a respectful way. If you're a faculty member, going to your chair or a vice chair or somebody you can trust and saying, look, you know, and there's also a difference in how you approach it, right? If you go and you say, you know, Stephen is clearly doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> right? Versus, you know, I debated whether to come. I'm not sure. I, I have noticed this. I just wanted to bring it up and get your opinion. And if you think that there's something here or if you've heard this before, maybe, you know, you want to do something about it. I, I defer to your expertise here and your leadership. You know, that's a much more respectful way to do it. So, so much of this is about how you approach it, how you bring it up. And, and you know, that like we've been saying about how you communicate. Absolutely. All right. So, Lastly, what about people with strongly held religious beliefs, whether that's a patient's beliefs or the clinician's beliefs, and when those things don't don't line up, you know, you said you actually initially were thinking about going becoming a, a, a pastor. Um, I'm sure you've thought deeply about this stuff. Um, how does that play in, and, and how should people approach situations where their religious beliefs may play into their care? 
difficult or potentially difficult situation to navigate. Um, and some religious beliefs are more restrictive than others. Um, maternal uh, health care is, is fraught with these very complicated, complex scenarios. Communication um, above, you know, for, you know, first and foremost. And, and there's other discussions upon which, you know, should your religious belief, if this is your religious belief, should you be practicing in certain specialties because that may limit the care you provide. That's a fair conversation to be had, but the and the truth is there's people with strongly held religious beliefs that are practicing and their beliefs may limit some of the care that they provide. So having your group know that, you know, you may or may not participate in certain types of cases allows them to be able to schedule the right person for that case and hopefully be able to navigate that situation. And that conversation should be had that if this is a life or limb emergency case, you are expected to perform your duty as a physician. Um, and if not, there's, you know, ethical, moral, and legal ramifications for not doing so. Um, other religious beliefs, um, whether that's uh, a low-hanging fruit, uh, those that are of the Jehovah's Witness faith and you know, will they accept blood products? There's ample literature about that. One of the misconceptions that I that I hear and have to discuss with other residents and, and other people on, on Twitter, because people practice Jehovah's Witness does not mean that they adamantly refuse all blood products. It's not an on-off switch. You still have to have that conversation with each patient and determine what their goals are, what their priorities are, what they do and do not accept. Um, and then the the concept of if someone refuses blood to the point that they would exsanguinate and die, is that something that you are able to um, take part in as a clinician? Elective case, um, you know, there perhaps may be some wiggle room in the department where if you're not um, morally able to let your patient, um, you know, expire for lack of blood product, then someone else who believes different, there's not morally opposed to that, would be able to cover that case. Again, in an urgent emergent setting, it's a different conversation. Yeah, I think we, we recently, no, go ahead, we recently had a, uh, uh, you know, with, in the setting of COVID and COVID swabs. So our policy is you have to realize, you know, what is a policy and what is there for patient safety? A policy is you need to be COVID swabbed prior to proceeding to the OR for elective cases. Had a patient come in and a somewhat urgent case who had refused a COVID swab. I found this out after the fact as this urgent case had been converted to more of a um, urgent emergent case and was now coming to my team down in the OR. And it was a situation of, oh, this patient is refusing a COVID swab. Well, what do we do? Oh, well, we have to do the case anyways. So we'll do standard you know, COVID precautions and provide the care that this patient needs. Yeah, I think this is, again, a very interesting and potentially difficult area. Um, the uh, I think what, what you brought up again, and at the risk of sounding like a broken record for both of us here, is the communication. So to say, oh, the patients are Jehovah's Witness, therefore we know what that means in terms of what they want. Of course not. You have to talk to each individual person um, and figure out exactly what that means to them and under what circumstances. And that's our job, you know? So is that a little more extensive a pre-op discussion than your ASA one having a, you know, hernia repair with no issues? Of course it is, but that's our job. And I would say for people out there who think, well, I don't have time because of the pressure for the turnover. 
you know, you got to say, this is one of those times the turnover might be a little longer and I'm okay with that because we have to do what's right for the patient. Absolutely. Steven, let's talk about uh, if you're willing to do it a little bit about um, maybe what your experience in the Navy has been and how some of the ethical dilemmas that arise might be unique to folks who are in the service. Absolutely. Um, so first and foremost, these are my own personal views, not those of the Department of Defense, United States Navy. Um, it's been a, a rewarding couple of years. I'm finishing up four years in active duty, and I came in and joined the Hospital Ethics Committee. It does function a little differently. The Navy and the military kind of runs on instructions, which are you know a, a big uh, government organization. They're very detailed, written uh, formats of their policies and procedures. So in some formats or in some forms, the ethics of some of these decisions uh, are a little simpler, a little bit more paternalistic, uh, but realize that when you swear into the military, you do give up some of your rights uh, compared to the individual citizen, such as, you know, your right to privacy. So in certain situations, your chain of command does have the authority to view your medical records. Um, your, your chain of command does in, in some situations have some impact on when you can or cannot have medical procedures done. Um, and just realizing that interplay between the need of the military, because you're responsible not just for yourself, but for your shipmates, for the ship, for the overall warfighting effort, that priority, um, that hierarchy is a little different when compared to the civilian, um, the civilian way of going about things, um, triaging. And, you know, the, the fact that on the battlefield, you're actually treating both enemy combatants alongside, um, you know, your, your own countrymen. Um, it's been a very interesting experience to navigate and kind of see where, where do I stand, you know, from my civilian practice and training and medical ethics, what is different? Overall, because I did prepare a uh, presentation, is able to, present down in Guantanamo Bay. I spent a month down in Guantanamo Bay working at the hospital and I gave a presentation, a, a grand round of medical ethics. And overall, the the statement from the Department of Defense is that you are to uphold the principles of your own society's guidelines. So the American Medical Association's uh, standards of ethics, American Nursing Association, um, we all have our own guidelines and they encourage us all to follow those. And in very rare situations, there may be a conflict at which point that would be uh, navigated. Yeah, I imagine. And and there are, as you mentioned earlier when we were talking, I'm sure there are times where, though the expectation is you follow the chain of command and you follow orders, there are times where you may not be able or, or even ethically able to do that when there's a true kind of um, violation of, of what should be done. And um, there was actually an interesting podcast I heard recently. Uh, I think it was about, uh, it was an interview, might have been The Daily uh, from the New York Times. I can't remember exactly, but it was an interview with one of the former prisoners from Guantanamo Bay um, talking about um, some of the really extreme treatment he had received, including some that would be categorized as torture, and that some of the uh, folks involved did ha quit. You know, they said, we can't, if this is what's going to happen, uh, we have to, or they reported it to, um, you know, the inspector general or whatever it is. So, you know, there are times where if someone says, uh, I, and I, I shouldn't be saying this as if I'm an expert, let me ask you, 
Uh, is it true that there are times where if you are given an order that you feel is illegal or, you know, extremely unethical that your duty actually yeah. is to say no? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. You're, you're not required to follow an unlawful order. Um, and the decisions that we make within this whole realm of ethics, you know, it doesn't free you from the repercussions of the decision that you make. It may be detrimental to your career in the, in the military, just like it may be detrimental to your, to your career in the civilian world to stand up for what you believe in. Um, but there is a caveat. And then when all the, the, you know, chips from the table and you're able to sort through the decision-making and what is morally and ethically right or wrong. Um, you know, at some point in the future, there'll be judgment passed and hopefully, you know, you're, you're rewarded for doing what you thought and believed was the right thing to do. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, well, Stephen, this has been such a great conversation. Anything we didn't get to that you think we should uh, talk about before we move on? Um, I, you know, I think, the difficult thing is to consider that you're you're an expert on medical ethics because so often these situations kind of spring out of out of thin air. Next thing you know, you're you're confronted with a situation like I had a colleague who did a nerve block and the patient's family member did not sign the consent form. The consent wasn't co-signed. So it's like, oh, well, what do we do with this consent form? It's like, okay, well, what's the departmental policy versus did informed consent occur because informed consent is not obtaining a signature. It's the patient understanding the risk benefits um, or you're in pregnancy test before surgery, you know, it's the departmental policy versus the patient, you know, you know deciding to have one or, or not. So being able to have somebody that you, you can reach out to being familiar with your hospital policies, being comfortable enough to say, hang on, I don't have an answer for that. Let me go look this up real quick. Can uh, go a long way in, in helping you navigate these scenarios. Yeah, I think that's right on. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on this. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd recommend the audience check out uh, that uh, is that would be interesting for them? Absolutely. So this was the one part that I was the most stressed about uh, after <laughs> discussing coming on the show. I'm like, I have to have a good one. I don't know if I, you may have had this on before. My fiance recommended this for me though. It is the Dissect Podcast. It's hosted by Cole Kushner. Have you, you heard of uh, it? I, no, I haven't. No, tell All me more. Right. So this is a long form analysis of music. Right now I think it's about nine seasons and each season he focuses on an album. So I started his second season, which features uh, um, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy by Kanye West. And he breaks down each song. He breaks down the samples. He talks about kind of the the background and history of Kanye West, who is, you know, very a controversial character, um, you know, very conflicted. And he has a history. The, uh, the host has a history in music and writing orchestras and he's able to really break down the musical structure. So I went through the whole uh, second season in about a week and a half. Fantastic, fantastic podcast. Wow. That sounds great. So interesting. I often feel like there must be so much more to albums that I'm getting out of them. So it's great (laughs) to have an expert to break it down. That'll be something to definitely check out. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, I'm going to recommend if folks haven't already, check out uh, the Etherist podcast. It's by Anesthesiology News. There's now three, the third season just finished. 
And I will say that um, each one has been very interesting. I really liked this third season because it's uh, about the history of anesthesiology. So they go back to the birth of anesthesia, even before Morton's, uh, you know, uh, display in 1846 to what led up to that. And then to all the controversy around different types of anesthesia, ether versus chloroform, what was going on and who was doing what. They really do a nice job. And they've even now, they've kind of spiced it up a little bit. I think they have some actors, you know, kind of, uh, recreating some of the dialogue that happened back then. And, and they've really done a nice job. So uh, I enjoyed it. I would recommend checking out um, the Etherist podcast uh, by Anesthesiology News. All right. Well, Stephen, again, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Jed, thank you so much for having me. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter, we are on Facebook, we are on Reddit, and we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at Akrak Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Drs. Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.